This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast from InnoVarsity Press. Metal tracks never been a fabricator, but like MOK, I've been an agitator. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. I that I have your boy on the podcast, Alan Noble. <laughs> Why did you do that? One of the things we were excited about when we did the episode was because this was someone who you had a relationship with. And so you knew him. And there's always a certain trust when there's a friend who's on the podcast. We're also having super technological problems. So we could call this the Mike, the Mike Does the Work episode. So you couldn't come in. When we were getting to issues of truth and epistemology and politics, the fact that you that that the that the producer who couldn't step in and participate in the conversation was a little bit sad. So- I was kind of sad that I couldn't be a part of that conversation because Alan is my friend. And we even dunked on you at the beginning of the podcast. I know. We started no, that was the really you. painful thing about it is yeah. like when I'm getting dunked on, I can't defend myself. It just doesn't seem fair. Yeah. And the, and the point, by the way, for the people who listen to this part, the point of like doing it was to invite you into the podcast. Hopefully. <laughs> Like when I said that y'all were the Beatles and you were Lennon, I was like, I, maybe I should have said Christianity Today was Yoko Ono, but that would have been a little bit too on the nose. Yeah. Also, also, Alan was like, we didn't uh, talk about Christianity Today that way. Remember when you yeah. asked him that yeah. question? We were going to take down the world, man. Relevant and Christianity Today. I maybe know he's did. not supposed to say this, but I, yeah, would, I, I wanted to like pull the handbrake on that one because that's a straight up lie. I knew it was. Yeah. Like we're coming for him. I knew you. That's why I said it. I knew you were. We were coming for everybody near literal plans of global domination yeah that's how you do it part of what it means to something is to continue it when the plans for global domination don't come to fruition right because that's 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 the idealistic stage i'm going to start this thing and it's going to take over the world but then you realize well taking over the world is a lot more complicated than it sounds how do i still nonetheless do the small good or the medium good that god has called me to do you're homeschooled, so you're ready for this moment. This is you. This is your lane right here. With everything shut down, do you have any kids? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got three kids. They're not okay. homeschooled. Wait, wait a minute. Yeah. But you're in Oklahoma, correct? Yeah. Are y'all open? But I mean, look, <laughs> I don't know that we could ever get Oklahoma to shut down. But um, yeah, so we're pretty open. My kids go to a classical school, and everybody's wearing masks, and the whole sophomore class just got quarantined. But um, it's working. We're, wait- we're trying to get the Christmas break. The end of the week. We're just got to make it to the end of the week. I, I don't want to be the one to tell you, but having an entire class quarantine <laughs> isn't working. I don't, I, don't know the, I don't know the definition of working in Oklahoma, but like everybody's on the quarantine. <laughs> Seems like it's going sideways. Fair. I feel like there's a couple of things we need to get out of the way first that might make it awkward. But after that, we can move forward in community. <laughs> All right, let's go. <laughs> it's the energy I like. So you wrote a book, The Disruptive Witness, correct? Yes, I did write that. Yeah, yeah. who's the publisher for that? Uh, Introversity Press. So like, I just want to make sure that you're not in your feelings about the fact that like we had to disrupt this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
didn't even know that IVP was behind this. So oh. I, felt, I felt fine until, like, I would say two seconds ago when you okay. brought it up. I'll, I'll, I'll live with it. I'll live with it. And once again, Disruptor is in the title of your book. Yeah. But we didn't invite you for a year and a half. So how do you feel about that? Process that it's, for the for the audience. It's been a year and a half. I, I, mean, I, I feel like... I, I, I feel like it's been a year, and so it's yeah. really that half year that pushes it over the edge for me. <laughs> that's a little too much. One year so, I can understand, but, you know, it's COVID season, but a year and a half, that's plenty of time to just say, yeah. hey, Alan, oh, you know, what are you doing? You know, you want to get on a podcast? You've done podcasts before, but, uh, you know, it's whatever. It's fine. So, so, so we're good. We're good. Yeah, let's say we're good. So we had to get those two <laughs> things out of the way. Because, okay. I mean, the other thing is like you made it through like the gauntlet because there's not, I mean, there's not a lot of fellas who make it on. I think you are our third white male guest. And so like, this is like, it's oh, you, wow. David Swanson and N.T. Wright. So like you, you're in the inner sanctum. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I should be here. For the people who don't know you, give us a little bit about your background, who you are, where you're from, what you do. Okay. Yeah. So I'm from uh, Southern California, the Antelope Valley. I was homeschooled, got into Francis Schaefer while I was uh, being homeschooled. And that was the opening to this whole, the, the, the new idea to me that it was possible for evangelicals to participate in culture in a way that was positive and not merely reactionary, which is what I had been raised to think in the evangelical 90s circles. Um, so wait a minute. Let's yeah. say, for example, yeah. you're like me, and you vaguely know who Francis Schaeffer is. For the audience, give us thirty seconds on Francis Schaeffer and why that was important for you. So Francis Schaeffer is this Presbyterian missionary to Europe after the Second World War, who founds this uh, uh, mission called Labrie in Switzerland, and basically his model is that he invites people into this house. And they came to him looking for answers about life's big questions, particularly in the 60s and 70s. One of the things he did that made him so uh, appealing is that he would talk about popular music, movies, film, uh, uh, books, uh, in a way, secular ones, in a way that was respectful and honest. And uh, not a lot of Christians, I felt, were, were doing that when I was growing up. You're one of those kids who kind of, you made it through the Christian school system. You found like a theological or spiritual North Star who who gave you a sense of, I can be a Christian, I can be thoughtful. Okay. How, how did you get from Francis Schaeffer to English major to Christ and pop culture? So, um, I, you know, I mentioned in the 90s, the, the evangelical culture I grew up in, there were a lot of... Uh, uh, taboos about culture. So I couldn't watch Smurfs, for example. One time, my mom saw that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, one of the characters, levitated, and I had to stop watching the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I've just missed that whole experience of being a kid in the nineties. But the mutant turtle thing was fine. Like it's the levitation <laughs> with a lot. <laughs> I'm just look, trying. Look, 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 that's just scientific, right? Like you know, you could. <laughs> Talking turtles, fine. Flying no talking problem. turtles is crossing the line. That's fair. I'm just trying <laughs> yeah. to figure out how this works. Uh, oh man, yeah, yeah. There was there was some yeah. Uh, my mom recorded over our uh, VHS copies of uh, the Star Wars original trilogy because my sister tried to use the Force. So um, I've got a lot of trauma that I'm working through right now. Oh, that's but fine. It's gonna it's be fine. okay. It's gonna be okay. So that was kind of the that was what I grew up in, and the the idea was. 
culture out there is secular and it's dangerous and you need to stay away. We need to build our, our alternative. And so when then I read Schaefer and he's like engaging, now he was engaging the Beatles because that was at the time, but it was a model for treating secular works respectably. So then I, I had always loved music and I loved literature. And so when I saw somebody doing this, I thought, oh, I can do this. For the listeners to the podcast, you know, for the people who are like really close listeners, they would know that when you dropped the Beatles, I, I, I said in like an early season that I couldn't name one Beatles song. So here we go. This is a Christ and pop culture separated by two radically different cultures. But go ahead. <laughs> the Beatles. Has that changed? No, I still don't. I live with a, a, in joyful ignorance of all things. Wait, didn't they sing that song about holding hands or something? I want to hold your hand. No. Is that a Beatles song? Yes, yes, that is. That that is. Was, boom, look at that. I just pulled that yeah. out. See, you there know exactly go. what I'm talking about. Okay, go ahead. Page here. Yeah. So I was taking classes at a community college. We were reading literature, and I loved it. I just loved reading books, and I thought, I could do this some more. I really didn't know what I wanted to do with life. And so sort of as I continued to read Schaefer and get uh, exposed to other Christian, particularly Reformed thinkers who uh, took culture seriously, and as I learned more about literature, I thought, I want to get a master's degree in this. And um, I also wanted to start a podcast. Uh, interestingly, I wanted to start a podcast uh, about pop culture, Christianity and, and popular culture. So I do a Google, so I do a search and um, some other schmuck had already uh, made one named Richard Clark. And so I was like, well, I guess I won't do that. Um, I heard, I heard, I heard that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to start any beef between y'all. For people who don't know, fun. for the people, for the listener, the Christ and Pop Culture website, of which you're the general editor, was co-founded by both you and Richard. And when I asked Richard what happened, he said that y'all were like the Beatles and he was Lennon. Is that what it was? And like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is untrue. Untrue. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I found out about this podcast and uh, Richard was doing it and uh, I interacted with him and he said, hey, we're going to start a website to go along with it in a magazine. Do you want to come on board? And so, so I did. And uh, yeah, so that was a great experience. That was a really very formative experience. Just trying to, to write to a general audience about things, about how to interpret and interact with culture. So what's it like to be like young and idealistic and starting a website that you think is going to change the world? <laughs> like it's terrible. <laughs> it's did you terrible. think we're coming for, did you say we're coming for you Christianity today and relevant or whoever? Like did you say we're, I mean, we're coming fathom? I don't know who your who your beef was. But like what, I mean, what was that like? I don't, want, I don't want to name names, but okay. um none of those none of those groups, but uh, you know, I think I think when we started, we were doing something that I don't that were it wasn't happening very often. So you had some highly educated, mostly academic Christians who were talking about culture in a really smart biblical way, and then you had sort of the uh, appeal to the lay Christian that was tended to be legalistic and superficial and just ignorant about the arts. And so we wanted to be that middle space, like we're going to talk to the guy behind us in the pew about okay how to watch a film. But we're going to bring that wisdom, uh, the academic side, to bear. So, yeah, idealism. So when you opened up the first chapter of my book um, that I'm sure you've read, Reading My Black, and it opens up with the quote of Andre 3000, you felt like that's the final form <laughs> of Christ in pop culture. What was the quote? I don't remember. Wait, what do you mean? You know, I, thought, I thought you said you, that you used it for your devotionals at home. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> 
opens with first second Corinthians chapter four verse thirteen. Andre three thousand didn't write that. No, he's next, sir. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> because gotcha. my editor said if I had Andre before the Bible, people would think that I'm putting outcasts above the Bible. So I, actually, I don't put that on my editor. I don't put that on my editor. Much love to Anna Gissing in case she hears this. Somebody said that to me at some point. I don't know who it was. It wasn't Anna. Right. She does everything wonderfully. But um, I'm not reading to you the Andre 3000 quote. I'm not going to do it. What I'm saying is like... <laughs> When I when I wrote when I wrote Reading While Black, uh, one of the things that I really wanted to do was to be intentional about bringing African American popular culture in the conversation with important theological questions. And so, so I say that I'm dead serious when I say that. Like, yeah. one of the things that for me as an academic is um, I felt like for too often they wanted to exclude Black culture as being a an important dialogue partner. And one of the things that I did with with my book was to bring those things into conversation. And one of the interesting things about uh, moving in kind of these evangelical spaces is that it is a different culture in the sense that even, and I, I joke about the Beatles and whatever else y'all are into in private pop culture. And it, it is like me, the, the, the Ninja Turtles, right? <laughs> but it, it is, it is a sense in which like, the, the cultural lexicon of evangelicalism isn't always cognizant or aware of how distinctive it is and even the things that are taboo. So like, I know people who a lot who say things like, Oh, I wasn't allowed to like watch or listen to Harry Potter growing up. Well, I guess you would watch it or read it. Um, but like Harry Potter was there, but I didn't have like that whole, like if you watch a movie about witches, you're going to turn into a witch form of Christianity. It's just been really <laughs> interesting to like meet people who are recovering from it. And they're all excited by like, watch me and my kids watch this turtle levitate. Ha ha ha. <laughs> we didn't become pagans. <laughs> Well, I'm glad I could be here, Seth. <laughs> okay, so tell me, what was your taboo? Did you have a taboo growing up? Was there some, a, an equivalent of any kind? Man, you don't 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 give me yes. don't give me don't give me talking about how my mama let me do what I wanted to do. I don't want her coming for me. I want to say All the right. wheels. I was I would say I would say. Like black culture, if I can speak, I would say Southern black culture is much more celebratory in the sense of like musically, like I listened to all the soul music and I didn't know what they were talking about. I just like the beat. And so like I'd go back and listen to it now, but like until, or even like movies, I mean, I'm watching like Boys in the Hood and like Spike Lee stuff and like from when, but put it like this, the only limitation that I, that I remember having is the time that it took, and you have to be old enough to remember this. Something would come out on the movie theater, then it had to go to VHS, and then it had to go from VHS to HBO, and then from HBO to like ABC. And by the time it got to ABC, basically I could watch it. That was like the rule. So by the time it made it through that long journey, so we watch all kinds of stuff. I mean, I watched things like Roots and like all of that stuff as a kid. This would sound like, this would be super heavy, but like, I think there's so much like trauma and like other stuff going on in black culture in the sense of like the experiences of racism and those things, like protecting your kids from like seeing things that are upsetting feels to me to be like less of a thing. Versus more like, I need you to see this so you can understand what's going on. And I remember a lot of times my mom would say, you don't even understand this, but I want you to watch it to kind of be exposed to it. 
you watch something like, oh, we're going to watch a movie about Martin Luther King and he gets shot. I can't remember there being something that was out that was accessible that I couldn't watch. But now as a, as a parent, I am much more influenced by kind of like a moderate form of like the evangelical edit in the sense of like, there's certain things I don't let my kids watch. I'm not saying that that, that was wrong. I'm saying I, I was brought differently. So you go from the, you go from like engaging in popular culture to writing this book about like the, the disruptive witness of the church. Are those things related? Are they different? Like how, how do you put those two things together? My my big love, my big passion is helping the church to understand how to participate in culture better. So sometimes that means cultural works like the arts, music, film, etc. But sometimes that just means how the culture functions. So uh, so a more sociological side. So uh, or or communications, communication e- ecology. So things like how does technology change the way we think? How does it change our habits? How does it form us? Things like that. So <clears throat> that's that's the connection there. And uh, as with a lot of postgraduate work, um, part of this book came out of a, a dissertation. So I, in my dissertation, I wrote on a very different topic, but I worked with Charles Taylor's A Secular Age extensively. And so it was just bouncing around in my head as I thought about how my students were interacting with and dealing with and engaging with technology and it seemed to me that there was this um, this this confluence between the way uh, technology buffers ourselves, buffers us from reality, and the way that secularism does a similar thing. And uh, so we just kind of went off from there. If the medium is the message, is it possible for us not to be distorted by technology? Like, is it possible for something like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and fleets for the for the people who are really <laughs> up on it or parlor <laughs> not to make us worse people is that possible <clears throat> to not make us worse people so it's I mean, like, or, 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 or distort us in some way any medium is going to be impure if you imagine a medium is like a, a mirror or not a mirror a window that window is always going to have some kind of impurity so you're not going to get exactly what's on the other side uh, and so some of these some of these mediums are highly distorting and they distort our perception of the world and our souls. Some of them are moderately so. Some of them we can sort of make adjustments to. We can account for by saying, I know what this is doing. I know this is, for example, trying to put me into a certain sociological bubble. So I only hear people who agree with me. So I'm going to do things to get out of that intentionally. Uh, and I think there are some mediums, some technology, some apps that that, um, that that probably even aren't worth. They're so destructive that that I don't I don't know that they're valuable. How does Twitter distort us? Twitter is such an a uh, relatively open platform, contrary to the the parlor crowd, uh, that it can distort us in so many different ways. So you could be, for example, uh, radicalized to a, uh, a, dis- a, a, a distorted version of Christianity by being on Twitter. You follow certain people, you follow certain influencers, all of a sudden you're following what they have to say and you don't even think about the other side. I've seen things like that happen. It can distort you uh, uh, politically. It can make you vain. Um, it can, I mean, it, it's endless, it, endless possible. It's a sandbox of potential distortions. Do you think that the current polarization of the church is a 
that Twitter reflects it, that it drives it, or there's something else going on underneath it. Because I feel like right now, and maybe maybe I am the person who is distorted, but I look at like what's happening with the church to church's witness in the present moment, and I look at our kind of inability to, to discern truth from falsehood, and I see people, and maybe I am the person who is wrong, but it's like, I mean, okay, let me give you a perfect example. It seems pretty clear to me that like the election is over, but it seems to me that it, it also feels now, just to say publicly, that, that Joe Biden seems to have won a fair election feels like a partisan statement that a certain segment of the church are saying, why are you being political? And that feels yeah. to me just like a fact. And so right. is that because of social media? Is it because of something else? So what I'm saying is like, is it not, it is not simply the fact that I can't, I can say, so, let me give you another example. I would say, you, you might say something like, okay, um, wearing cameras for police officers is like one way to reduce violence against the innocent. Now, that's a particular policy that people can agree to disagree on. And you could have 15 different ways of thinking about how can you improve police interactions. You put that in like one category. I'm not talking about those kinds of debates. I'm talking about the election was fair and a person lost is now seen as political in a way that it, to me, it seems like you're saying that the sky is blue. And do you think that that, where is that coming from? And is it related to kind of the technological mediums that we use to express ourselves? Man, that's, that's, that's the million dollar question. I think it's, it's highly complicated. I think there's lots of things working together to, to produce this. So I would describe it as um, an epistemological uh, crisis. That's a phrase uh, Obama used recently in an interview, but I, I did use that phrase in 2016. I'm not saying that Obama got it from me, President Obama, but I'm I'm saying it's possible that I influenced him through some third party well, or something. I, I heard I heard that his next book is called A Disruptive Hope. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> My lawyers have figured that out. Yeah. Anyway, so. Um, uh, you, technology has a has a major role to play in this. I think you have a lot of things going on. People ha- are very skeptical about authority figures. They're very skeptical about technology. Truth is, uh, or I shouldn't say truth. Data is inf- information is available in ways that it was never historically available. And with very little filters, so the traditional filters that we would use to say, okay, this is true, I should accept this, have almost entirely broken down. It's uh, Information is entirely democratic, and that's not really a good thing. It turns out gatekeepers can be really helpful in weeding out falsehood and propaganda and nonsense. So those things are all working together. And then, you know, I, I do think having a president who embraced that ideology, who basically says... Look, truth is a function of power. The truth is whatever uh, fits my agenda and and what's going to support me and my people. And when you have that at the highest office, unapologetically, previous presidents lied, sure, but just this unapologetic willingness to distort facts. I think what that does is is it it makes people feel more comfortable saying, "I don't accept these official results." Hey everybody, Richard here, producer of The Disruptors. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know that you can go to ivpress.com slash disruptors with an E to learn more about IVP books and get 30% off all titles with free shipping. And now let's go back to the conversation. 
this might be weird, and so forgive me for taking you down this road. But I was Do first it. in addressed to evangelicalism, where I literally got on a, in a car and I drove. I won't say where from, from where I was going to school in Tennessee to a to a seminary in the South. And there was a speaker who um, stood up and introduced me to this thing called postmodernism. And he was saying that the biggest problem in the church is postmodernism and the inability to access truth. And truth was always tied to power. And the people in power, you know, kind of force you to believe these things. And they say, and so like I was introduced to the dangers of postmodernism and the inability to access truth and the, the, the denial of all sources that don't fit your data by evangelicalism. It can serve the most conservative form of evangelicalism. So it was very disoriented to me as to now see basically that same group seemingly adopt the ideology that they said was the biggest danger facing the church. In other words, like there seems to be a certain set of people who are allowed to give you data, and that data is only viable if it supports a narrative that justifies you doing what you want to do anyway. And so maybe this might be a question that you can't answer, but how did the segment of evangelicalism that seemingly was most afraid of postmodernism adopt a postmodern hermeneutic in in approach to data? Postmodernism, in my experience, is most useful as a description of the way things are rather than as a positive uh, philosophy, as like a way to live. And I think that's one way of explaining this, is that uh, these people didn't sit around and say, you know what, I'm going to become a postmodernist. But instead, the form of their lives, the shape that information took in their lives over time got them to the place where they felt like they could not know anything for certain, but what they could know is that it's important to protect them and their people. And I think a lot of American politics have come down to this. I can't know what is true, but here's what I can know. I need to look out for me and my own. And so if that means that I'm biased and I accept uh, certain uh, election results because they, they conform to what I want to see, look, everybody's doing that. That's what I've been hearing from people. Look, everybody's doing that. So what... I, I might as well look out for my people. And uh, it's a kind of hopelessness. It is a kind of hopelessness. But I think if you talk to those individuals, they would deny, they would say, no, I'm not being postmodernist. No, th- for, for real, uh, they're all wrong. And, and this is, this is reality. One of the things that's like, that's been disorienting for me to read this, and this is someone as a Paul scholar, is the absolute fear of like, the loss of power. Like if the opposite side comes in, they're going to do these things that are going to ruin our lives. And so the only way that we can like maintain who we are as Christians is through the imposition of the will. And if, and if it requires us to do things that violate our own consciences or our own ethical norms in order to maintain that, then that's fine. The strange things about that though, is like, to me, the whole narrative of Christianity is, you know, this is Philippians chapter two, verses five. Like he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Like Jesus actually abandons power for the sake. And Paul's whole like apostolic ministry is cruciform that the cross and humility is the way towards the transformation of the world. And so one of the things that I've seen, if there's one thing that I can say is that some people's theology of power seems to be directly at odds with the nature or the or the 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 basic emphases of the Christian narrative itself. Is that an unfair thing to say? 
if you say some people, I think no, that's actually I say some. I, I don't. I don't I, yeah. I, one of the other things that I don't like to do is like, I mean, there's tons of podcasts and other places you can go that just dunks on evangelicalism all of the time, and it's fine because if you if you there has to be a reckoning for the things that you do. But I see this particular dynamic in the church. And if it fits you, it fits you. I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned with saying everybody in a certain sociological category does A, B, and C. What I can say, this seems to be a phenomenon that I see in the church. So what is the way out of some of this stuff? And I know it shouldn't be your job to begin to solve the problems. But if there, if we are in these these closed circles where only data that supports what we want to believe is accepted, how can the church move forward? Okay, so first I want to put Bill's advocate for you because yeah. you asked me to do that. And actually you yeah. said you asked me not to do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. So I, I, so I think you have some people in the spectrum you just described where they are just afraid of losing any power. And I will say that they're picking that up in our wider culture. Uh, Non-Christian, I mean, everyone else doing politics believes the same thing. You do not want to lose power. Losing power is losing everything. But Christians should be different. That's the important part. Now, I think there are others that recognize that there are some parts of the DNC who, when if they get in power, they're not just going to, uh, you know, take sort of evangelicals out of power. That there, there may, there will likely be some pushback on religious institutions, and so there's some, you know, fear that's grounded in actual policies that have been proposed and laws that have been tried to be passed. And, um, you know, that's, that's a reality and it's difficult. And so it's one thing to say, okay, I'm willing to give up power. I'm okay being persecuted. But what's challenging is when you're thinking about it from an American perspective, you're also voting for, uh, potentially the oppression of other Christians. And that's where I think it gets tricky. If I think that a certain candidate is going to lead to, let's say, religious universities losing the ability to take federal grants. I'm not just voting for my loss of power for myself. I'm voting for the inability for, for, you know, for children of evangelicals to not be able to attend school as they have traditionally. I agree. One of the things that I think that people do sometimes is they assume that a critique of one is the affirmation of the other. And me and you both, we're both a part of the Anne Campaign Leadership Council, even though we've never talked to one another. And so one of the good things that I like about the Anne Campaign is that it, it, has as a part of its ethos, not simply trading the ideological right for the ideological left. And so I recognize the problems with the Democratic White House and that the Christian, regardless of who, who is in power, is going to have some things that are really difficult. One of the things that does give me pause, though, with that being granted, is there's the assumption that Christians aren't currently suffering. And so what I mean is, like, there is current suffering that is being going, that is being undergone by Christians and the things that people are afraid of, this way I can push back, are the things that disproportionately impact them. And that's rooted in a bigger view of the world. So for example, if racism isn't really that bad, right, and it's something that kind of black people can deal with, well then the real problem is what happens to these schools aren't funded. And so like I would say, yes, Christian schools should have religious freedom, but racism is really bad. And there is a underlying assumption that the that the complaints of Christians of color aren't really that bad. And the things that really matter are abortion and religious freedom. I am pro-life. I understand that. Life, it begins, it consent, all of that stuff. What I'm saying is there is not, to my mind, a serious wrestling. There tends to be a hand wave. Yeah, I know things are bad, 
But here are the real issues. And until I think we get to the point where our issues are seen as equally Christian concerns that that weigh that should weigh heavily upon the consciences of people. Because one of the things, and, and forgive me, this is the rant on the other side of the election. But one of the things that that, that really bothers me is there, there there tends to be a yes, this is bad, but everything else is worse. Therefore, the the things that black people experience, yeah, that's bad. But and then, but here's the problem. Underneath that is I'm acknowledging something that I don't really believe is a problem, because I never hear people write the other article. See, what I mean is they will say racism is bad, but the real problem is this, and then, but the real problem is like fifteen hundred of the seventeen hundred words. What I want is the fifteen hundred word article on racism. Right. By people who believe that religious liberty is a problem. Yeah. And so when I feel like you feel it like I feel it, then we can be partners. And one of the big problems is we can't partner because the partnership is always asymmetrical. In other words, they want people want us to join into like those issues without taking seriously the issues that we face. And I think that's where the big divide is. That's where like the church can't come together until they feel really feel in the depths of who they are, these issues, we can't cooperate because I can't cooperate with you if the cost of that cooperation is me denying the things that I think are most important. The question is, what is a deal breaker? And the problem is racism isn't a deal breaker. And racism isn't a deal breaker because racism isn't acknowledged. Until people understand that something doesn't have to be morally equivalent to be equally a deal breaker. That's the point I was trying to make. Someone like believes that like wife abuse should be legal and kidnapping should be legal. Kidnapping is probably the word like to not necessarily like what well, actually kidnapping and wife abuse are actually pretty horrible. I can't think of like two morally incongruous things, right? But like um <laughs> I get you, you see what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. I get your point. Things don't have to be equivalent for them to be deal breakers. And I'm not saying that like every single thing is like racism is is the only evil, but racism is the kind of evil that's a deal breaker. And I just don't I can't I can't say that I'm going to ignore the racism and then deal with religious liberty. And I feel like a lot of my the, the fact that even if that's not what is stated, that tends to be the outcome. And in order to justify that, and this is where this comes down to, like the knowability of truth. Nobody's going to say that racism isn't a deal breaker, but what I care about is religious liberty, because that makes them feel horrible. So the only way to allow religious liberty to be the focus is to say, well, the racism isn't that bad. And that's where, like, the the divide comes in. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, as you said, like, that's that's why I'm a part of the Yang campaign. That's why I don't find the... while, While I share the religious liberty concerns of people who are further to my right, and I, I get those. That's not persuasive enough uh, for me to overlook things like racism. As you know, you were, you started that by talking about other oppression, other ways that Christians are oppressed. So one is racism. I think another great example. You know, you mentioned globally. Uh, well, refugees, Christian refugees. There have been a lot of great uh, programs that have been shouting for four years, hey, look at what's happening to Christian refugees under this administration. You say you're Christians, and this is a Christian president, but they're being turned away, and they will die for that. This is not hypothetical. This is real. Uh, but again, we, we kind of, well, you know, they're in another country, America, you know, we got to think of America first. And so there are ways 
people can justify it. Maybe maybe we can ask you this other question so we do feel like we're balanced as a podcast. One of the things that I've noticed and um, about the present moment is because of the particular set of issues that were raised by this candidate, this presidency, it was easy for theologically conservative Christians to kind of exist in broad cooperation with more progressive and even secular people. So if you're like, let's be, you know, more compassionate about immigration, let's care about racism. Those are issues in which like Christians and non-Christians could have kind of a, a, a easier consensus. One of the things that I think is going to be interesting over the next four years is now those issues are actually under a Biden presidency are going to switch over to things that are like more traditionally like um, where Christians in the secular culture are in a clash. So do you think that like Christians who've who've been very vocal around things that secularists will like agree with them about? Like, how do you think their witness changes now that we might be in a different dealing with a different set of issues? So I've been, I, I've thought about this, right? So Biden's going to be president and he's uh, probably his administration administration is going to do something. Maybe it's uh, ending the Hyde Amendment, for example, or, or making some other exp- move on abortion that I find abhorrent. Right. And I'm going to I'm going to say something at that point. And I'm thinking about all these people who have followed me on social media because I'm, I'm a conservative who's willing to say this this president has done things that are immoral and this should not be. And, and I'm curious to see what, you know, are are, you know, because I've had very progressive friends sort of pat me on the back and and I'm happy for, you know, oh, hey, we agree. OK, this this is an abuse of power. We agree. That's great. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens when uh I, I seek to be consistent, and uh, I, don't, I, I suspect, to answer your question, I suspect that, that it's going to be difficult for some people that they might just feel like, well, maybe I just need to overlook the flaws of Biden because Trump was so bad. Do you think that Disruptive Season 3 would be like, now nobody likes us? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been a nice run. It's been a nice run. Because uh, I think... But do you think that like conservatives who then see us coming back around where there actually might be a place of more cooperation around issues of life, Christians who are, who are strongly divided during the Trump presidency, who then find themselves back as co-belligerents around other, do you think that that's a possible reconciliation or do you think that they will be like one group over here talking about it, talking about this and the other group talking about it for different reasons? Do you think there'll be some kind of mutual cooperation. I keep thinking about what motivates people politically. So when I imagine when I have a number of friends who are Trump supporters and when I when I when I think through that what is what's motivating them? Because if we have similar motives uh, or if excuse me if we have antagonistic motives then we're not going to be co-belligerents. But if we have motives that are parallel or even overlapping then we're going to be able to over time another year or so patch things up and and work together. And it seems to me that that for a good many of people, what motivates them politically is the the narrative, the narrative that's crafted on social media, through all forms of the media, through the rhetoric that's used by politicians, the feeling that you get by being a part of a certain political group, the identity that you're given. And um, so what, what I'm wondering is, assuming Trump sort of fades away to some extent, 
Uh, do those people, uh, after that narrative dies down, do they just become more, you know, reasonable again? Or, or do they, uh, in other words, do their staunch support of a candidate, does that turn down after the narrative apparatus done by social media and websites and publications and TV shows, after that sort of begins to uh, filter away? And I, I, don't, I don't know. I was actually sad. Whenever election week finally came to its conclusion, and it didn't hit me because I kind of thought that we would vote, and then one way or the other, the church would n- not move on, but like take the next step. That it would be it would be some kind of narrative clarifier. And I and I realized after the election when I saw kind of you know different things that the church remained as divided before the election as it was after the election. And it is actually the work that remains for the church is to to have the hard conversation um, to figure out really like the shape of our witness. And I know that like there there's such a still persistent distrust of one another. And I am not sure how that's done other than some form of like I think I think you know, you know th- this will sound like way more polemical th- than I want it to sound. I, no, I'll, I'll put it this way: there needs to be a bunch of local conversations. There's not this huge battle for Middle Earth. I think that what we have is like the battle for the Shire. It's going to be have to fought out. It's going to be fought out in a thousand places locally. The reason why I still have hope for at least the traditional side of Christianity is because we at least claim to have the same starting points. And so we have a common resource where we at least claim to be, we're trying to read the Bible together. And so even when people don't, it, when people ignore it, I can say, here's this text. And here's where this text influences the way we see the world. And from this text, we should be able to find a way trusting in the spirit of God towards community. But I think that that work cannot be affected by the ballot. It actually has to come to like these, like you talked about, this epistemological transformation that needs to happen in the church. It's got to be local. And the challenge for local congregations is that a lot of people are being shaped primarily outside of their communities. Uh, I've heard uh, professors here uh, lament many times that uh, uh, religious professors that I know say, you know, our students are being more formed by, quote unquote, theologians on YouTube than they are the people who they're taking class, like they're paying money to be taught by these great scholars, but they're not being shaped by them. They're choosing to be shaped elsewhere. So I think that's part of the challenge for local congregations. And it may mean, it may mean that pastors, elders, deacons, they have to be intentional about, about saying, hey, we need to, you know, talk. We need to have strong communities. We need to have these kinds of conversations because the alternative, if we let things run the way it is, these divisions, uh, uh, think about it like this. If you've got a church where there's some people who voted one way and then other group that voted the other, their default, the safest thing, the most comfortable thing to do is not to talk to each other in person, but to retreat to your digital sanctuaries and, uh, and talk to your own tribe. And so you could still have local congregations where this change isn't happening. It's got, somebody's got to be intentional and, um, you know, maybe it starts at the table. So at my church, I feel blessed that, you know, um, there are people who support, uh, who voted, I'm confident voted for Trump. There are people who voted for Biden. There are people who voted for nobody probably. And we share the same table. And, um, as things got tense during the election season and we might have thought, man, how can that person support that candidate? 
there's something about the power of coming to the table, each of us coming to the table and recognizing, wow, our unity is in Christ. So I guess I need to rethink things. I need to dial things down a little bit because the division I'm feeling is a worldly division. It's not spiritual reality. I am of two minds about the polarization in the church. Some divisions are real, and the reasons for those things need to be like worked out in order to have community. And it is that like I don't want to say that like you should deny communion to people. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I think that like how do we talk about sharing a common faith while realize while not ignoring the real reasons for the differences? And I would say that the hard the hard work of the church going forward is to talk about those things and that like unity cannot be used to, to belittle the real concerns of people. And I know that's not what you're trying to do um, at all. And I don't think that as a church, we're ever going to come to any kind of like unified common consensus about who people should vote for and who people shouldn't vote for as a general rule. But I do think that, we have to find a way to live together while emphasizing the unity that we have in Christ, but not downplaying the real things that divide us. And that we, because we believe the truth is accessible, we have to fight our way towards that truth. If people are interested in finding more about you, where can they locate you? Where can they catch up with you? Like, where can somebody connect with your scholarship and your work? Yes. Yeah, so, Christ of Pop Culture as a website, I'm uh, editor in chief of. All right, I think I have a website called oallennoble.com. I'm not positive, to be honest. Uh, but you can also follow me on Twitter at theallennoble. The that, that one I know. I appreciate a lot of stuff that Alan said. I appreciated what he said about the search for truth, the fact that social media distorts us. And that's that's the other thing that I can come from this podcast. The people wanted us to resolve in that conversation how Christians of goodwill can have strong disagreements and live together in a sound bite, then that's not how theology reality works. That's a complex topic that has a lot of nuances to it. And when he talked about in the podcast how social media distorts us, that the medium influences the message, that we can sometimes take really complex theological ideas and try to squeeze them into a tweet or a post, and they're inevitably more nuanced than that. And so one of the things that I took from the podcast is to recognize the ways in which the the form that I engage in, all of us who, are, who participate in this technological world, distorts us and to be more intentional about finding ways to not allow that distortion to do damage to my own witness and to my own soul. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. We will be grateful if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. You can follow me at Esau McCauley and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at IVPress.com.